His word spoken to me. It is the truth. I believe this word. I receive this word today. And I commit before God to not just be a hearer of this word, but a doer of this word. If this word says one thing, and I see something else, I believe what this word says. If this word says one thing, and I feel something else, this word is the truth. I base my life on the word of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. That'll change your day right there. God has just been impressing me. So I'm going to impress you. (laughs) That we walk by faith. It says in a number of places, starting in Habakkuk, the just, how many of you have been justified? How many many of you saved? Shall live by faith. Not visited every once in a while when you're going to get in trouble. We are to live by faith. And walk by faith and not by what we see. Now, when you drive home, you better drive by what you see. But when it comes to the things of God, it's by what God says. If God says one thing and my senses, my mind tell me something else, I'm going to go with what God says. Praise the Lord. So, turn with me. This is hard, but turn me to Genesis chapter 1. Anybody's trouble finding that, ask your neighbor. We're continuing this morning in our study of who Jesus is. Just to review quickly, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet. He said, But who do you say that I am? And that's what we're looking at. Who do you say that he is? Who is he to you? Peter spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood didn't tell you that, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. So we've been looking at what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, that God gave His Son to us. The first thing we saw is it's a measure of how much God loves us. That He was willing to give His own Son's life in your place. That's the measure of how much He loves you. And we really don't have yet yet, but we'll keep working at it, keep meditating on that. Second thing is we saw that because God gave us His Son, that that means Jesus is God. Jesus is God, and so how you relate to Him is what you, how you relate to God. How your neighbors relate to Him, what they think of Him is what they think of God. And so He doesn't give us the choice of what God's like, but He reduces Him to a man walking in the flesh, still the Son of God, but also in the flesh. The third aspect is what we've been looking at lately, and that's that Jesus is, because He is God in the flesh, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And last week we, we laid some foundation for that and we went back and saw how that in John chapter 1 he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word is the full expression. So that means in the beginning you had God the Father, the Creator, the Author of everything and with Him was another being that was the complete expression of Him, of His nature, His will and His character. And then in verse 14 it says, And that word, that full expression of the God's nature, will, and character became flesh and dwelt among us. And we could behold Him now. We could see Him. And what we saw about Him is He's full of grace and truth. We saw over in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that He is the outshining of God's nature. He is the outshining of His character. And He is the exact image of His person. We saw Jesus' own testimony about himself in a number of places, but the most powerful one is in John 14 where Jesus said to Peter, to Philip, don't you understand if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we began to look last week at Jesus because what we're looking now, this third significance is we can gain a much deeper understanding of what God is like by looking at Jesus. And so we went through and looked at some aspects of Jesus. We didn't go through a lot of scripture. We're going to do some of that. We're going to do a lot of that today. But we saw in him, we saw in him a certain aspect of God's nature. And what we and the importance of this to us is is this. That Jesus said that in order to pray, you've got to have faith in God. That went over big. <laughs> in order to pray, you've got to have faith in God. Amen. 
If you, do you want answers to your prayers or you just want to go through some religious... If you want answers to your prayers, Jesus said, you must have faith in God, Mark eleven twenty two, Because 23 says, whosoever shall say unto this mountain... Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them. When do you receive it? When you prayed. And you shall have them. So the order is this. You ask, when you ask, you believe you received it, and you have it after you believed it. The world system works the other way around. You believe you've got it after you received it. But in God's kingdom, we're going to learn more about that next year. We're going to learn more about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God works on just the opposite rules of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world says that you be- seeing is believing. The kingdom of God says you believe first, then you see. You believe first, then you have. But the key to that is verse 22, when Jesus says, have faith in God. How can I have that kind of confidence that what I'm asking him I'm going to receive unless I know what he's like. We saw last week in, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15, such powerful verses. It says, if you ask anything that's according to his will, and we fi- solved what according to his will was, because that's what's sitting in your lap. If it's in here, it's his will. Amen. Come on. In fact, it's his will, it says, his testament. Testament just means will. Old Testament, old will. New Testament, new will. Old Testament, old covenant. New Testament, new covenant. It's an expression of God's will. If it's in here, it's His will for you. The devil wants you hung up on whether it's His will. Well, we're learning. We're going to learn what His will is. The next verse says, And if He hears us, it's talking about what God's like. This is what He's like. If He hears you, you have the request that's been made known to you. God wants certainty. Last Tuesday in prayer, in here, I really felt the Spirit of God speaking out to the people that were here, and it's not just for them, but they're the ones that heard it, is God wants you certain. He doesn't want you questioning. He doesn't want you wondering. He doesn't want you, I don't know what, we don't know what God will do. That's why He gave us His will. So you can know what He'll do. Well, I don't see that in my life. That's because you've got to believe that this is His will and then act on it. That's right. Amen. That's it. Come on. So what we're doing is where this third aspect of what it means that God, Jesus is God in the flesh is He came to reveal what God the Father is like so we can have confidence and know what He's like. So last week we looked through several aspects of Him and the title last week was The Much More God. We looked at some aspects of Jesus' public ministry and how he handled situations. And we saw that he didn't draw limitations. He didn't restrict people. In fact, the only restriction on what he would do is what they were willing to believe. Now we're talking about things consistent with God's nature. So you can't believe for a second wife. (laughs) Don't look around. (laughs) Or a second husband. It's got to be according to his will. But most of us have an understanding of what that is. And so God, so Jesus didn't restrict people. We saw last week, He never criticized anybody for believing for too much. The only criticism He ever gave, other than to the religious people, was that they didn't believe enough. And what we're looking at is one of the essential elements of God's character to give you confidence before Him is to understand that God is generous. I'll say that over here. One of the greatest things you need to know about God, foundational things, is that God is generous. He's not holding things back. Listen to your own prayers, and it will reveal to you really what you think of God. And I'm still working on this. My wife and I are praying about a situation the other day, and she's talking about, you know, well, God, you know, this gave him all the reasons why he ought to answer our prayers. And I said, that's not what the Word says. And I do the same thing. I catch myself doing the same thing. It's like I'm still back arguing a case before a judge. But the basis of it is he's made a promise to us. 
So I simply take the promise to him. See, God wants to do things in your life and to answer prayers, not because you can give him a good reason to do it. But that's our thinking, because that's what we do with each other. Well, you've given me a good enough reason, then I'll help you. So we go and plead our case. Oh, God, this person would be a great Christian. Now think how silly that is. Because you understand the Bible says that it, it, is our, it, it is our unworthiness that qualifies us. The men that in the Old Testament that thought they were worthy, Jesus says, you guys don't make it. That's the Pharisees. So what makes a good Christian is we need him. <laughs> we're desperate. We're sinners. That's what qualifies. What qualifies you to be a Christian is you're a sinner. <laughs> That's the qualification. So when you say that person would make a great Christian, what you're saying is they're a big sinner. <laughs> But the thinking process is this. I've got to give God reasons why he ought to answer my prayer the same way I would give other people reasons. But you've got to renew your mind to what this word says. The word says he, asks, he answers because you ask him in faith. And all faith is is what allows you to receive something he already gave. So why would you tell God why he ought to give something he's already given? Jesus never said, give reasons. He said, you must ask in faith. faith. Nothing (laughs) doubting. God's already promised it. So you don't have to give him reasons to do it. That's unbelief. Show you how this is so important. In, in, in not only does it say in Mark, Mark 11, 22, that in order to do this, you must have faith in God. One of the biggest scriptures is in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, it isn't just that faith pleases him, but it does. Just think about that. If your kids trust you and your word, doesn't that bless you? When they just do something because you told them to do it, or they listen to you, or they, you know, you said, I'm going to get this, you know, for you, or I'm going to do something for you, and, and, and they just rest because they have confidence because you said it, you're going to do it. Doesn't that bless you? Well, it blesses God when you do that with Him. But if you make a promise to your kids and they run around and said, Oh, I don't know what we're going to do, we're falling apart, I mean, no, I don't know, Dad may love them. that doesn't bless you, does it? It blesses you to see your children trust you, to see other people trust you, take you at your word. In fact, if somebody doesn't take you at your word, you can get a little insulted. And all we're talking about is simply taking God at his word. So Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. But then it goes on and tells you why. For For in order to come to God... That verse is talking about coming to God for anything. To worship Him, to pray, just to come to Him. You must believe two things. That's why it takes faith. You must believe He is. And that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. You must believe He answers you when you pray. So there again we see that it's so important. Because faith is knowing God's nature and character. You develop trust in somebody as you get to know what they're like. You watch them perform under certain circumstances. You begin to learn that you can trust their word or not trust their word. And so we're learning now. Jesus came in the flesh. One of the reasons is so we could learn what his father's nature is like so that we could trust him. Did I give you enough time to find Genesis 1? I just wanted to make sure you had enough time to find Genesis 1 because I know it can be hard to locate. All right, so that's what we're doing. We're going to now look at some scriptures in the Old Testament. So obviously Jesus didn't come and live in the Old Testament, although there are occasions when he does appear in the Old Testament, but not as Jesus. He appears as the Word. But here we're going to look at something just about God's nature, some scriptures just to give us an idea of God's nature. So we go to the book of beginnings. Genesis means the book of beginnings. So we're going to look at there. This is creation. Let's look at what God did when he created. Genesis 1, verses 20 through 22. Then God said, 
This is his creation. Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Whatever God does, he does in abundance. And let the birds fly over the earth, over the, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living thing that moves with, with which the water, waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed. Notice he didn't curse. He blessed. This is his creation. This is where Satan's not involved. Nobody else, this is, a, this is the full expression of God's will. Because God's making something here. So it's nobody else is involved. God's making it. And notice how often we see the words abound and blessed. Notice how often we see the words abound and blessed. See, our image so often is God's the God of whatever is needed, but no more than that. Or in other words, he's the God of the much less. He's handing out what he... It's like we've got to talk him out of things. That's the image we have so often. You just listen to people pray, especially yourself. We've got to talk God into doing something for us. We've got to convince him that there's a real need here. So we spend whatever time telling him what the need is, as if he doesn't know. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you ask? Says the Gentiles, don't pray the way the Gentiles pray. They pray trusting in how they pray. They trust in their many words. He says, don't be like that. Don't you know that your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask? That means he's involved in your life. That means he's watching you. Not just with a big stick to hit you when you get out of whack. He's not doing that anyway. But he's watching you to see what you need. In fact, he knows what you need before you were born. And he's provided the answer for you. Well, how come I haven't seen it? Do you believe he's provided it for you? Because you won't find something you're not looking for. And that you don't expect there. Christmas morning, our kids came downstairs expecting. They came downstairs looking. They came downstairs anticipating. In fact, when some of them were younger, they were up at 2 in the morning anticipating. Because <laughs> they expected something to be under the tree. Why? Because they knew their father and mother. They knew that. In fact, they got to know me so well that when they'd unwrap the presents, they were still looking for that little note somewhere in the tree that would start a treasure hunt for what I really wanted, we really wanted to give them. They looked for it. That's faith. That's expecting. But it's based on knowing their father and mother. And so here we see in creation, God has nobody... Involved. It's just God carrying out His will. And it was good. And He blessed it. Let's take a look at verse uh, 27. God's made man. Verse 27. So God created the man in His own image. That's generous right there. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them. The word blessed isn't just something you say when somebody sneezes. Somebody sneezes and somebody says to you, or you sneeze and God bless you. You know where that came from? Because they discovered that when you sneeze, your heart stops for a moment. I don't know if it's medically true, but that's what the belief came from. So the fact that you breathe again, God blessed you. <laughs> God blessed you with another breath, and your heart started again. <laughs> But you look in the Bible, when God blesses, people are blessed. I love Psalm 133. It talks about unity. It's not the message this morning. But at the end of it, it says, when we walk in unity, God commands His blessings. How would you like to have God commanding His blessings? I don't mean just He's issued them and you've got to go look. He's commanded them upon you. 
God speaking with all the authority that which, by which He created everything, commanding His blessings on you. Yeah, that's a good verse, but you've got to read the rest of the psalm. It talks about unity. Unity. We began to look Wednesday night that, that peace, you know, the Old Testament, shalom, and the New Testament, irony, peace means unity, being one, being a one unit. And there's a blessing in that. God commands us. He can command his blessing where there's unity because it's not going to cause fractions and division. So God blesses. God's a blesser. He loves to bless. His nature is to bless. You know, nobody makes God do anything he doesn't want to do. So if he's blessing, it's because he wants to. All right. Let's go over to chapter 2, verse 8. Now out of all this creation, God says, that's not good enough. I've got to make a special place for my man to live. So God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Eden means place of delight. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant for sight and good for food. Say pleasant. pleasant. Say good. good. It's okay to sell those words in church. Pleasant to look at. And good for food. That means tasted good. Oh, see, well, I want to go there. I don't have time to go this morning. It just it will distract us. And the tree of life. The tree of life was also in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's go over to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and that means together, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now think about this. When you hear the word God commands, you kind of go, what's he going to ask me to do? He commanded them to eat. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> he commanded them to freely eat. Freely means without limitation. He commanded them to freely eat. See, we miss the depths of the character of God because we read over things quickly. He commanded them to eat freely. He didn't give them a list of a thousand calories you can only eat that day. Oh, come on now. Don't be so holy here. How'd you like God to command you? Eat whatever you want, as much as you want. Now, we're still in chapter 2. <laughs> but this is God's care. He wanted them to enjoy it, to eat freely. He didn't give them a bunch of rules and regulations. He's not sitting up there with a big stick saying, you better not get out of line because I'm going to get you. I don't want you enjoying yourself. He commanded them. He commanded them to enjoy themselves. Now, this is before three, chapter 3, where Satan comes in. This is God's character and his nature, his will. He made a special place for them. Better than everything else that he already said was good. A special place of delight. And placed them there. And gave them a job. But it was an easy job. Because at that point, there were no weeds And he didn't have to turn on the sprinkler or the hose because the Bible says at that time a mist rose up in the morning and settled down over it. He just had to watch over the goodness of God's creation that took care of itself. It's not like that now because we got chapter 3. In chapter 3, God has to issue a curse. 
but the curse is a protection. He has to keep Adam out of the center of the garden. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So get this picture. See, this is the opposite of the picture that we often get of God in religion. God's created this beautiful creation. He's created out of that a special place of delight just for his man and woman. He's put them in there. He's commanding them to eat freely and enjoy everything that's in there. There's just one thing they can't eat. See, our image of God is just the opposite. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And if you happen to catch him on a good day, you can eat this or you can do this. So we're kind of rebelling against him, trying to get away with stuff. God says, you enjoy it. There's one thing you can't eat of. There's several reasons for that. There may be more. Well, be more. Notice it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe that's because God did not design them to handle that knowledge. The proof of it is they didn't do too good a job of it. <laughs> and we still don't. See, they, God expected them to obey Him. He can handle the knowledge of good and evil. And if He knows the difference between good and evil, and we do everything He says, we don't need to know the difference between good and evil. The other, you ready for this one? This is the first instance of the tithe. Ooh. Wait, how do you get that out of that, Pastor? I can feel people tighten up. Just relax. I'm not asking for money. God gave this to them, but they didn't create it. And human nature has this tendency that when we're enjoying something, we tend to feel as if it's ours. And therefore, we can exercise our own dominion over it. God selected one tree to remind them, you don't own this. You're a steward over it. And as you're a steward, enjoy. Be blessed by it. But I'm reminding you there's one thing you can't do. And that's to remind you, I own it. You just enjoy it. Some people say, well, you know, where's the tithe in the New Testament? Well, actually, when you understand what the New Testament once said, you want to go back to the tithe. Because the New Testament says it's all His. It's all His. He just tells you to set aside the first tenth as holy, belonging to Him. It's a reminder that everything you have comes from Him. It's a reminder that you're dependent upon Him, just as they were dependent upon Him. We'll talk more about that down the road, but, but just that's, that's what I want you to see here. God's not holding a bunch of things back from them. God's giving it all freely to, for them to enjoy. Not own. Enjoy. There's just one thing they can't touch. And of course, that's the one thing they touched. All right, well, we better move on. We're, oh, we're not... We're just talking about God's nature here. Let's go over to Genesis 15. Of course, there's chapter 3 comes involved, and they go ahead and do what God told them not to do. They disobey Him. They release in the earth a curse. They open the door for Satan to become the God of this world because actually what happens is Adam takes the authority that he was given and he gives it over to Satan, who now becomes the God of this world. Genesis chapter 15. Oops, I'm in Exodus. That's why it doesn't make sense. We fast forward now, and God's going to create a new people that belong to Him. And so He chooses a man. He chooses a man who worships the moon. His name is Abram. And He tells him to go out and leave the place where he's lived and to... And to, and to go to a place where God's going to tell him when he gets there. That takes faith. It takes more faith to go tell your wife. <laughs> we're moving. 
Why? Because God spoke to me, and she doesn't know who God is. But where are we going? I don't know, because he'll tell me when we get there. <laughs> that takes faith. <laughs> well, they do it. And, and God it starts in Genesis 12, and there's some other things that happen in there. God begins to reveal to him. And now in chapter 15, God, see, God, God doesn't ask you to do things without giving you a basis for trusting him. And so now what God is announcing to Abram is that God is entering into a blood covenant with him. And we don't have time this morning to go through all the elements in it, but they're there. And God, because what, what would happen in those days, and Abraham, Abram understood what a blood covenant was. What a blood covenant was is between whether they were tribes or families or, or groups that, that needed to have some re, re, relationship with each other and needed to know where they could trust each other. What they would do is enter into a covenant. And in that covenant, the highest type of covenant was a blood covenant because blood represents life. And what they would do is they would cut their bodies. And sometimes they would cut them in the palm of the hand or in the wrist, sometimes on the forehead, maybe sometimes on the chest. And they would take their blood and intermingle it. Whether in, 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 sometimes they would drink each other's blood. Sometimes they would take the mark and they would hold the, the cuts together so that the blood from one entered into the blood of the other. And that represented an intermingling of life, which basically essentially meant in this covenant, these two now became one together. And because they were one, all the assets and liabilities of one became the assets and liabilities of the other. All the, all the, so, and the identity of one was now the identity of the other. So in a case of protection, for instance, if you have one tribe or one family here and another over there, and, and this family or tribe's walking down the path and somebody comes up to attack them and they see a mark on their forehead, that's a sign that if I mess with him, I'm also messing with whoever they're in covenant with. I better find out who they're in covenant with. So it created a certainty, it created a bond, a relationship that strengthened the two of them. Sometimes they were done for economic reasons, sometimes they were done for protection reasons. And now God comes to Abram to give him confidence for what he's about to tell him to do, and God tells him things that indicate to him that he's about to enter into a covenant a blood covenant where they've unheard of a blood covenant between God and man. Unheard of. A blood covenant between God and man. Now, God doesn't need to do that because He cannot lie. We don't need to have a blood covenant with God to make sure He's going to do what He said He's going to do because He can't lie. But God, even though He could have said that, look, I can't lie, just trust me, He knew because of what we were like, He had to take a step by which we had confidence that we could trust what he said. So that's the background here. So Abram understands this. If you go back into chapter 12, you begin to see some of that. But, but we, I want to look at one particular aspect of this here. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, that's the these things. <laughs> the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. One of the things that they would do to enter into covenant is they would take their armor and exchange their armor because it represented part of who they were. So God here, he doesn't have any armor to exchange with Abram. So what he says is, I am, literally in the Hebrew it says, I am is your shield. I am is now your reward. I'm giving myself to you as your shield and I'm giving myself to you as your reward. Abraham's catching on to this because look at his reaction. Verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? See, he understands that there's something coming out of this. By the way, go back to what I said about a blood covenant. It means that when the two parties come together, all their assets and liabilities are exchanged with each other. We understand what that is, what marriage is based on. Marriage is a blood covenant. It is a giving of your life to each other. And if more couples understood that, we would have much less divorce, much fewer divorces. There have been times that's what held us together through the tough times because it's a blood covenant before God. 
And so that meant that all my assets and liabilities became hers. All her assets and liabilities became mine. Now just think about that with God. All of his assets and liabilities become yours. All of them. We're talking about what God's like. What kind of assets does he have? What kind of liabilities does he have? Well, he does. There are things that are on his heart that he cares about, that move him. They're not liability in that he owes something, but they're a weight on his heart. Those now become ours. All your assets now become his. And all your liabilities, your sins, your failures, your weaknesses become his. Abram caught on to this. He says, what do I get? What, 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 what? What do I, now this is, we're talking about God's nature now. What do I get? Now we're going to see here either a God who's trying to figure out how little he has to give or how much he can give. See, God's not trying to figure out how little he has to do for you. He's trying to get you into a position where he can do more. Exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. Let's see what God does with him here. This is so good. Abraham said to the Lord God in verse 2, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, at this point, Abram's about 75 years old. Maybe 85 at this point. He has no children. That was a disgrace in that time. There was no one to pass on his possessions and his influence, his servants, all there was no one to pass it on to. The practice in that days is you could pick your most trusted servant and essentially adopt him as your heir. And although he could do that, that's not what was in his heart to do. So the first thing that comes out of him is, all right, if you're entering into a covenant with me, what am I going to get? Because here's what my desire is. I don't have a child, and at this point it's hopeless. Because what we didn't look at here is his wife is barren. Sarah. And they're past childbearing age. So there's three strikes against them, which means you're out, right? Except if you're with God. She's barren, she's too old, and he's too old. One, two, three strikes. But his first reaction is, if you're entering into a covenant with me, what do I get? Because here's what I want. I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. That's what I want. So we're, we're, we're content if God would just give us what we want. Oh. Oh. And Abraham said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. That's the servant. But one shall come forth from your own body, shall be your heir. So God starts off by talking to him about something that's impossible. That's where God starts. Oh. <laughs> He'll do exceeding abundantly beyond all you can think or ask. So God starts working at the end of what you can think. Oh, this is good. God starts working at the end where, where you run out of what you can think or ask. Here's an example. All Abraham could think or ask is this servant of mine is now the heir of my household. The very best I can ask you for is an heir. How come I don't have an heir? And it's too late. God says that servant's not going to be your heir. But that heir is going to come from your own body and your wife's body. Something that's impossible. something that's impossible is where God starts this is why we walk by faith why Jesus went to his own hometown and said I could do no mighty miracles there not that I didn't want to I couldn't because of their unbelief 
That's why we talked about last week when Jairus came to him and asked, my daughter's at the point of death, and Jesus said, I'll come. And he's sidetracked by the woman with the issue of blood. And by the time he's finished with her, he turns around and they come and say, uh, don't bother the master anymore. It's too late. See, that's all right. Don't, don't bother God. That's religion. We don't want to bother God. We don't ask too much. It's too late. You don't want to bother him. That isn't what Jesus said. He spun around, and I told you last week, I don't, it's not in the scripture, but I just picture him grabbing Jairus' robes and looking in his eyes, saying, man, don't quit on me now. Do not fear. Only believe. In other words, I'm not done. The fact that she's dead doesn't stop me. What stops you? What circumstance stops you from believing? Yeah, I prayed and the symptom didn't go away. Does that stop you? Death didn't stop Jesus. The report that it's too late didn't stop Jesus. But what could have stopped him is if Jairus feared and stopped believing. That could have stopped him. God starts with Abram with what's impossible. God, don't you understand? Uh, she's barren. She's too old. And I'm too old. See, that doesn't stop God. I mean, where do you think all this stuff came from? By his words. Romans 8, 17. says, As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed. In God's sight, well, let me go on. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is so exciting. This is what God's like. Get to know him. Verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body will be your heir. And he brought him outside. So God brings him outside. And said, Now look towards the heavens. What's this got to do with my heir? God, you know, I want a child. You said we're now entering this covenant. That means what you have is mine. You're now a resource to me. What I want is a child. And God says, let's change the subject a minute. Come on out here. And he says, look at the stars of the sky. I I want to read it to you. I don't want to just tell you. I want to read this to you. I want you to see this is in your Bible. Brought him outside, verse 5, and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And I believe that he had him, I believe there's a pause here. Well, God is letting Abraham's senses get filled up with the number of the stars. He's expanding his vision. God's trying to get Abraham to begin to think in God's terms, not Abraham's terms. Abraham's terms is much less. God's thinking is much less. You know, we think, you know, well, you know, we, you know, the circumstances in the world look just so overwhelming. There was a man a number of years ago, he's still around, he's still working, he's still ministering, named Reinhard Bunke. And God gave him a vision of Africa, completely washed by the blood of Jesus. Every soul saved. That couldn't happen. That's the vision God gave him. God thinks bigger than we do. We think, yeah, but that can't. But when God says something, when God says something, why are we going to limit Him? Remember, Jesus never criticized anybody for believing too much. Oh, you know, you don't you don't want to believe for providence, all of providence to get saved. That's too much to believe for all of providence. You know, God would He might look He might no, He won't. And once Abraham's senses got filled up with the enormity of the stars, God spoke and said, so shall your descendants be. Next time there's a night where it's dark and the moon's not out, look up in the clouds, look at the stars. It's hard around here to really see what he would have seen back then, but look at the stars and imagine God speaking to you. So shall your descendants be. 
as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. That's, Matthew, that's uh, uh, Romans 4.17. According to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Goes on to say, without becoming weak in faith. Some translations say he considered his body. Some translations say he considered not his body. No, it doesn't matter. He wasn't moved by what his body told him. Because what his body told him had nothing to do with what God said. Amen. What your body tells you has nothing. The circumstances have nothing to do. If God said he's going to do something, what do circumstances have to do with it? Amen. How can circumstances stop God from doing what he said he was going to do? That's why he didn't waver in unbelief. Because the circumstances had nothing to do with what's possible. The only thing that has anything to do with what's possible is located between your left ear and your right ear. Your own mind. We put the limit on what God will do. We put the limit on what God will do because we don't know Him as He really is. We think that He is handing out what he needs to hand out, what we can convince him to hand out. When the Bible gives you an image of God, we're just looking in the Old Testament so far. When the Bible tells us that God is more than generous, God wants to bless and pour out an abundance of his blessings and his love and his grace and his goodness. God wants to answer your prayers. He wants to, you're his child. It doesn't even make sense in our natural life. We want to see our children well and healthy and blessed. It doesn't bless us to see our children suffering. Well, it's going to teach them something. Yeah, the only thing ever taught me is I don't want to suffer. <laughs> now, there are things you can learn by going through that. And there is a suffering the Bible says we are to go through, but it's not sickness and disease, it's persecution. You promise to go through that if you live righteously. All right. Let me go on. So I took him outside and showed him the heavens. He said, count the stars if you're able. Able to count them. He said, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted to him for righteousness. God was willing... Once Abraham believed what God promised him, God attributed his righteousness to him. And that's a forerunner of the New Testament where our right standing before God comes by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And here's where this begins to hit the road in our lives. Because if we believe that God is a God that does as little as He has to, if He's a much less God, then our salvation will be a much less salvation. The reason more Christians aren't enjoying their relationship with God is they're still worried about where they stand with Him. We're still back on home plate when the ball's just been hit over the fence. And we're standing on home plate wondering if it's okay to leave the plate and run to first base. Because I don't know what God's going to think of me if I step out. Faith in the blood shed on the cross. Your standing before God is based on your faith, is based on what Jesus did for you and you receive and enjoy that by faith, just as Abraham received and enjoyed having a huge multitude of nations come from him by faith. By faith. By faith. God thinks big. God thinks big. Just Think for a moment of what's in, going on in your life right now. Think of the things that are weighing on you right now. Whether it's your finances, your job, or the fact you don't have a job. Whether it's some issues in your body, some health. Whether it's relatives and relationships with people. Whether it's children that aren't serving God. Whether it's children that may be out there in a horrible situation. Or you may not even know where they are. 
whatever it is that's going on in your life right now. That you, you don't even know, though, you can really bring it to God. Because first of all, you may feel some guilt. You know, maybe I participated in this. Maybe if I'd have been a better parent or if I had done this at your work or maybe I'd done something better. All of that robs you of your confidence before God. But I don't find in my Bible where God says he's going to do anything for you because of how well you've handled it or not handled it. But it's by faith and what he's promised to do. Satan's trick, remember he's only a deceiver, is to get you looking at yourself. Well, I didn't do this, and I wasn't the best parent I could have been, and I could have done this better. You know, If maybe I'd said this to my boss, if maybe I'd done this differently, maybe da-da-da-da-da-da. It's all looking at you. And I didn't see anything in here where God said anything about Abram, except what Abraham was incapable of doing himself. God found a person, a husband and wife, that were incapable of producing a child. And God says, that's the one I'm going to work with. That's who I'm going to work with. Because it's going to be clear that I'm the one that did it. Amen. So why are you so worried about what you've been doing or not doing? I'm not saying not live, living right before God. We need to live right before God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when, you're, when you've got a circumstance in your life that you want to believe God for, but the enemy's beating you up because you think, well, you know, I can't do this. I, don't, I can't do this. Because, you know, i got to get over this. I had this. Blah, 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 blah. All right. Bring it to the blood. Bring it to the cross. Whatever you did or didn't do, the cross settles everything. Just bring it to the cross. Don't carry it around. Don't worry about it. Don't try to stretch. Just bring it to the cross. Receive his forgiveness there. And now you can go on as if you never did it or didn't do it. And you have confidence now before God. Now begin to look at what God can do. Yes. Now begin to look at what God can do in that situation. And take the limits off what God can do. And just ask Him. 